As you are seated, if you would turn with me this morning to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. Now, I don't know about you and your house, but at our house, sometimes we have battles. Now, not actual combat, usually, but trials, struggles, sometimes disagreements or tough lessons for young and old alike. Sometimes at night when things have calmed down and Jennifer and I are alone, we take a deep breath. And we thank the Lord that a certain battle is over. At the same time, however, we anticipate the next battle that is to come. You see, this psalm is for the Christian who is grateful that God gives the victory, but also anticipates the great victories that are to come. If you would, follow along. Psalm 21, really connected with Psalm 20. Psalm 20 prays for the victory. Psalm 21 rejoices in that victory and anticipates the next battle. Let's read, or follow along as I read this together. Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight, you will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. As we consider this psalm, let us turn to the Lord briefly in prayer. O Lord, by your spirit you inspired David to write these words. Father, we pray that that same spirit would teach us, mold us, and shape us, giving us ears to hear and hearts to understand it. We pray that you might apply it to our lives, that we might with our tongues sing praises to you, and with our hearts find true joy in the victory you give us in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you think of battles, perhaps you haven't heard of one of the greatest military leaders of the Western world. In 14th and early 15th century Bohemia, John Huss proclaimed the word, and as the Hussite movement spread with the gospel focus and preaching in the language of the people, they were, of course, literally attacked again and again. A soldier came to believe the gospel under the teaching of John Huss and his followers, and he followed the Hussite movement. His name was Jan, or John Ziska, and he never lost a battle. In fact, he was said to be a man of honor, 
always fighting in defense of his people and not fighting outside the territory of Bohemia. And despite the opposite marks of his enemies, he always honored his agreements, even when the others did not. At the end, he led his troops in his ingenious ways, even when he was blinded. What was most genius besides his innovations, and there were many, in fact, some of the tactics on the battlefield used today are traced back to this man. He was competent on the field, but it was his character, his piety, and his devotion to God that were all noted by friend and foe alike. Now, being a Hussite, it is assumed that he rejoiced in these victories and gave credit not to himself or to his followers or to his competence or to his ingenious nature regarding military events, but to God for the victory. And so must we. Every victory that we encounter is a victory that God has accomplished on our behalf. You see, this psalm reminds us God gives the victory. The Lord will give the victory And therefore, we must praise the Lord for that victory. First of all, we're going to look at verses 2 through 6 together about the Lord giving the victory. Notice what the psalmist writes. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the, the request of his lips. Of course, the hymn here is the king. In fact, in chapter 20, this was one of the prayers that the people gave in this liturgical psalm that they might sing entering into battle. And they asked for God to fulfill the petitions of the king, even his heart's desire. And this is the response. God evidently did this on a particular battlefield. We don't know the circumstances behind the writing of this psalm. It doesn't tell us the specific uh, instance or event from which this psalm was written. But evidently God answered the prayer and David's plan of action and the battle plans were completed. And God gave the victory. So first of all, they're giving credit to God for these temporal blessings that God really did answer the prayer that was lifted up in Psalm 20 here in Psalm 21. So the first response or the first gift in this victory was God granting or answering the king's prayer. Don't we love answered prayers? I think a lot of us, if you're like me, you have a lot of things you pray for, but maybe you don't keep a list. Or maybe you don't remember the things that God has answered and the victories that have been won. It is so important sometimes to praise God for what he has done. But here it's not just answering prayer. Notice what it says in verse 3. You meet him... With rich blessings. You see, they recognized it was not just that God said, okay, I'm going to grant your request, and somehow, some way, that's all going to come to pass. It's interesting the words that are used here. You meet him with rich blessings. In other words, God, in essence, is described here as either going before David or meeting him on the way. The idea here is that the presence of the Lord is the part of the gift, part of the granting of the victory. It was the Lord's presence that in part empowered 
the army and David to gain the victory. And the indication here is that perhaps even before Psalm 20's request, that is, please give the king his heart's desire, took place, God was already on the way to meet those needs. He already knew the prayer that was to come. He had that relationship with the king and with the people of God that he was already answering that prayer even before it left their lips. So these temporal blessings included answering the king's prayer and the very presence of the Lord. But that's not enough. Notice what it says. He met him with rich blessings. The word rich here is the word good. God gave him good blessings. Now, of course, if you think that they are blessings, you think, well, they blessings and good, they go together, don't they? You know, when we say that you're blessed, we don't think that you're getting bad things. But here, this is a reminder that God is a giver of rich and wonderful gifts. And so he is coming and meeting him even before the prayer leaves the lips of the people on the battlefield with many blessings. And of course, one of these blessings brings glory to the king. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. This word for fine gold is the word pure gold. It's not just gold. It's gold that has been purified and is very valuable and gives glory to the wearer of the crown. And in essence, this victory is a reminder that God has endorsed his anointed king as the leader of his people. And the glory of the victory set on his head reminds them that yes, the king has an important role, but God is the giver of the victory. And then, of course, finally, verse 4, this temporal gift. It says, he asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. We're going to just pass over the forever and ever for just a moment. You have to remember when David was on the battlefield, he was not the kind of commander-in-chief that was back in Washington, D.C. while the troops were in Europe or Asia. He was the guy who led the troops on the battlefield. And he placed himself in danger at times. Sometimes even his mighty men would have to come to his rescue and fight the battle for him, particularly when he began began to get aged and old on the battlefield. At one point they said, you can't go anymore. They had to rescue him from the enemy. And why is that? Because God spared his life again and again, giving him his life. But then again, this psalm, like so many others, has rich and deeper meanings than just the praise of a particular victory that God gave on the battlefield. There is much more to this. This is the words, forever and ever. You see, God granted not just temporal blessings for that battle. He also granted eternal blessings. It says length of days forever and ever. Now, is David still alive today fighting the battles for Israel? Of course not. He died. We know where his tomb is. But if he trusted in God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by God's grace he was saved from his sins, then he is even now with Christ in spirit, awaiting the time when his body will be reunited with his spirit. And he has life forevermore. 
How much more could David fight these battles knowing that even if he died on the battlefield, he would still live? You see, his relationship was secure in the Lord. And so these eternal blessings begin with eternal life. Notice again the words, length of days forever and ever. Now there are some that will tell you when David writes this, it just is a euphemism for for saying longer than he expected. But I don't think that's necessarily what's being referred to here. It's recognizing his relationship with God is an eternal relationship. He gives him eternal life. And then verse 5 says, his glory is great. How? Because he won the battle? Because he uh, was an exceedingly great military commander? Because he wielded the sword in such a great fashion? No. Through your salvation. Now, of course, could this mean the salvation from the battlefield that God spared his life yes, yet again? Yes, of course. But if you're talking about splendor and majesty bestowed upon him, this can only be accomplished through the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And of course, here, this great blessing is an eternal blessing in recognition that David's relationship with God through the covenant was not just that David would reign and gain wealth and power and influence, but that someone in the line of David would be the forever king. And here it is, glory given to the followers of the king of kings. And then verse 6, for you make him most blessed, here's this word again, forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. After glory and splendor in the Lord's salvation, you get these more blessings. But notice again, these are forever blessings. And the word here for being blessed is actually the word being translated in the sense that you are the source of blessings to others forever and ever. You kind of get where that's coming from? Where is the source of blessing? How can David be the source of blessings forever and ever except by the fact that he's in the line of Jesus Christ? You see, when God promised David that he would have a king in his line on the throne forever, it's a reminder that here he is, in essence then, described as the source of the blessings of the king of kings who would rule forever in Christ our Lord. So here, in the promise of victory, God says to him, I am giving you blessing, and David writes not only of the victory of a temporal battle, but the victory of eternal life and being the source of eternal blessings. And then, of course, the last of these blessings in verse 6 is the joy of the presence of God. It begins and ends with the joy. God met him on the battlefield, his presence so crucial to the victory. And now there is great joy in the lingering presence of God. He has not left David, nor has he forsaken him on the battlefield or off. When you think about victories, I want to ask you a question. When your child or your grandchild asked you if you are afraid to die, can you look them in the eye and say no? Can you show them God's blessings and victories in past battles? 
Can you see, say to them, I see how God won this victory in my life, or this victory in the life of my parents, or this victory in the life of my church family. Can you show them God's blessings and victories like David does? Can you show them that God has answered one of your heart's desires when your heart has been attuned to God's will? Can you show them that God was there with you, walking with you, ahead of you, knowing what you have asked him? Can you show the good and rich blessings that God has given you? Can you show the glory that God has given his people from time to time? Can you show that child that you have an answer for the hope that is within you? That's what David's doing here. He's describing to all who will read that God does answer prayer. God does give the victory. And it's not just one victory, but a series of victories that leads to eternal life. And then, of course, he reminds the reader, God didn't stop with that particular battle, whatever it was that he's writing about. There were more battles to come. In the battles with the current generation, David writes this, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. In other words, he tells the Lord, I know you're going to discover your enemies. And of course, this reminds us these are not just the enemies without. These are also the enemies within. If you are someone who sits in our church worship service on a regular basis and you have never placed your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God knows this. God knows that, he, that, that you in this case have not trusted his promises, have not trusted in the Savior, have not believed the truth about Jesus coming to save his people, and he will find you out. If you are someone out in the world around us and you say to yourself, I'm okay, I'm a Christian, I'm basically a good person, and even though I never want to really pay much attention to the scriptures and live my life in a different way from the world, God will still know that you are not his people. You are actually his enemies. You see, God will discover his enemies. And what will he do with them? David writes these words. We don't like to hear them now. You will make them, that is his enemies and haters, a blazing oven when you appear. He says, when you appear and you've discovered your enemies, you will set them like a fiery oven. These are people. This isn't Christmas dinner. These are people he's talking about. His enemies, he will burn them up. It goes on. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. The Lord will consume them with fire. You know what this sounds like, fire and brimstone preaching. You know, the things that society around us will mock and ridicule. And of course, it's not just all about fire and brimstone because the fire and brimstone comes upon the enemies of God, but we also understand the love of God is greater perhaps even than his wrath for those who place their trust and hope in him alone. But this is a reminder that God will win the battles. If you're not on God's side, then you will be burned up and consumed in fire. And yes, it is... Certainly, still a Christmas message that God sent his son, yes, in judgment of his enemies, but in grace for his people. 
But it's not just with the current generation that David writes. God will win the battles with the coming generations. Notice what he says. You will destroy, that is, the enemies and the haters of God. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from the children of man. In other words, their fruit, that's the first word, and their seed, that is a reminder of their offspring, their descendants after them, will be eliminated. Their evil plans and their plots will be foiled. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise plots or mischief, they will not succeed. Their courage will fail. David writes this very picturesque way. You will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. The idea here is as they're fighting the battle, they'll realize that that God's power and strength is so overwhelming, they will lose their courage, turn their backs, and seek to, to flee away, and yet God will strike them with an arrow and they will be shot down. You see, the Lord will have the victory. Just as David celebrates one victory, he's reminding the people that until the final victory comes, there will be battle after battle, and God in the end will judge all his enemies. Some of those enemies, I hate to say, are going to be PKs, pastor kids. You know, they tell us that pastor's kids are either the best or the worst. We say, are they saintly sweet or are they demonically dreadful? You see, I was a PK. I'm not going to talk about my kids. I was a PK. My brother was a PK. My sisters were a PK. I don't know what people thought of us. I'm sure sometimes they thought we were saintly sweet and sometimes they thought we were demonically dreadful. But if they have been taught, these PKs have been taught God's word, but refuse to believe it, their plots and their plans can be particularly sinister. Why? Because they've learned the facts about the truth of Jesus Christ. They've received the benefits of the covenant sitting in church with their parents They've received the love of God's people as these people have prayed for them and supported them. And because they have all of these blessings growing up, if they reject the gospel, they are perhaps even the most sinister and the most likely to be able to do sneaky, awful things even within a church. But even those most learned, persuasive, and plotting evildoers will be defeated by the Lord. This is the promise. God will win the victory for his people and against his enemies. So now, with all of this, giving God credit for the victories he's won, anticipating the times when God will give the victory, what is the point of this entire psalm in recognition of this? It is that we must give God the praise. You see, verse 1 and verse 13 are an inclusio. That is, they begin and end with the same theme. Notice the two verses. The first one says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You see, here the king is leading the praise of the Lord. It's not about the king's might, the king's counselors, the king's war uh, 
efforts and all of those things. It is about the king giving credit to God. The praise belongs to him. It's in God's strength that the king rejoices. But the next thing about this is the very middle of the passage. Verse 7 is really the key to this whole psalm. It's the transition from looking at God's victory that had just happened, transitioning to looking at the next battles. This is verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. You see, this is all about the king's trust in the covenant Lord. The key here is the relationship between the covenant God of Israel, Jehovah or Yahweh, and the covenant people represented in the king. And because of that relationship, that relationship leads to praise to the God of the covenant and the faith of the king. And so here you see it. Why is it, in essence, that God is giving this victory? Did he give a victory to every king? No. Did he give a victory to David every time? No. He suffered some setbacks as well. But their trust was in the covenant God who had called him to be the king and anointed him by the power of his spirit, particularly through the prophet Samuel. You see, the king's trust in the covenant Lord was a reminder that he gives credit to God because he knows that God has his back, he loves him, he has promised him, and he is the one who provides the strength to win the battles. So therefore, how do we win the battles? It's not even because of our faith. It is because of the steadfast love of the Most High. Here's what it says, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. In other words, here's this word again, this Hebrew word for for God's steadfast love, covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness, has said that famous word. And it says here, this word of loyal love in the covenant is how we can be determined that God's people will not be moved from eternal salvation. Here it is. The key to this whole psalm is that the steadfast love of the Most High God will make it so that you and I, through all the battles we face, though we may lose some of the battles, the war will be won by the Father who has called us in his love through Jesus Christ. God is loyal to his people. David's success here. David's success attributed in part to, yes, his faith, but but the faith did not save him. It was the covenant faithfulness of God that saved him and would save him through Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. It's Christ's perfect submission and victory, emblematic in these words. Remember, every time we read these words of David, David is a type and a precursor of the Christ who was to come. When the king is looking to to the God of God's and King of Kings for his salvation were reminded of the words of Jesus speaking to his heavenly Father again and again and again. Not my will, but yours be done. 
And then the concluding verse, much like the first one, you might notice the difference. It said in the first one, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In the end it says, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. You see, back in chapter 20, there was this liturgical uh, responsive expression here. The king would say something, the people would say something. Now in this portion, it looks as if the king has spoken through verse 7, and then verses 8 through 12, perhaps a representative of the congregation has spoken, and here at the end, who sings the praises? It's the people. We recognize our strength is in the Lord. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our efforts. It's not in our ability to conquer the foe. It's not in our wisdom to find an escape. It's in the strength of God and his power. You see, the ultimate victory is found in the strength of the Lord on behalf of his covenant people. He sent his warrior, Jesus, into this world to defeat sin, death, and Satan. This warrior king accomplished his mission and won the battle on the cross and will have the ultimate victory on Judgment Day. So when we sing joy to the world, we're singing of the joy of the strength of the triune God. The Father who planned the victory, the Christ, the Son, Jesus, who accomplished the victory, and the Spirit who applies the victory to the believers who have trusted in him. Let us rejoice in the joy of victory this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory we have in Christ. We know, Lord, that it doesn't mean that every little thing we experience will lead to our pleasure It doesn't mean that you will always answer the prayers the way we want you to answer them, but it does mean that the ultimate victory is ours in Christ. We shall not be moved. You shall not allow the evil one to pluck us from your hand if we have trusted in Christ. Lord, help us to rejoice in your victory and to anticipate the final victory to come. In Jesus' name we pray.